where we're going to be looking at how words and our love of words translate from page to screen and, of course, in this case, from memoir to movie. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome two authors who've seen their lives and their stories unfurl before them uh, and, of course, before hundreds of thousands of cinema audiences. Uh, Saru Briley was lost on a train in India when he was five years old. His memoir, A Long Way Home, and the film Lion, which was made from that book, are the story of how 25 years later he crossed the world to find his way back home. Cheryl Strade's Wild tells the story of her journey from lost to found on the Pacific Crest Trail. She made the trip after the death of her mother, the scattering of her family, and the breakup of her marriage. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Cheryl Strade and Saru Briley. Thank you. Thank you so much. Cheryl, tell us the story. Right. So Wild is set in the summer of 1995 when I was 26 years old. And I decided to hike 1,100 miles or about 1,700 kilometers of the Pacific Crest Trail. The PCT is a national scenic trail. It runs uh, from the, uh, up, up the states of California, Oregon, and Washington, and the west coast of the United States, basically from the Mexican-U.S. border to the Canadian-U.S. border. And it's a very remote wilderness. Um, and so I, those of you who've read the book or seen the movie know that there was a lot of solitude, a lot of physical challenge and, and, and discomfort, a lot of toenails uh, falling off and so forth. Um, but really, I think the deeper story, the thing that Wild is really about, is essentially my path um, to healing. I decided to go hike the trail because I was suffering, because I was deeply grieving the young death of my mother who died at the age of 45 very suddenly of cancer. And, um, and really, I had sort of lost everything in losing my mom. My family unraveled and never, and never came back um, again. And so I was trying to find my way uh, back to my strength and back to myself. And I decided to take this hike to do that. So you guys that's, better love us as much as they love David that Williams. <laughs> we get the best deal, though. So that's the, that's the story of Wild um, in a nutshell. Okay, Saru. Well, um, this is like a, an eight-hour story um, and lots of chai tea. Um, but anyway, it's a, it's a story about uh, my story of a little five-year-old boy that's from the slums that uh, accidentally catches um, a train uh, in the early hours of the evening, and uh, not that it was any fault of his own, and uh, goes, in the, goes on this, uh, uh, steps onto this train destination unknown and ends up in Calcutta, and goes through trials and tribulations and hardship, uh, from almost being sort of abducted to almost drowning twice, and um, in the, the Hoogly River in the Ganges, um, to being adopted to Australia uh, with an adoptive parent, and then having this sort of... Uh, as sort of growing up from a child to an alt ambivalence and uh, nostalgia and the, and the feeling of being stuck between a rock and a hard plate and um, reoccurring memories of the past, um, a yearn, a later on sort of a yearning to wanting to find answers and closure to uh, his past life because everything happened so um, quickly, it expedited from being a kid with his family to catching a train to going to um, Calcutta, um, you know, trying to survive... Um, to being uh, taken into prison, to adoptive home, to coming to Australia, you know, click, 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 click. And then, you know, uh, sort of in my early 
uh, adult life, I decided to go on this sort of gigantic sort of journey of trying to find answers and closures of my past life and giving a valiant attempt to try and find my family. And, uh, and I found Google Earth. And, um, and I thought, you know, this application could use, I could use to find my family because I've got a very photographic memory. And, uh, and so I went on this sort of uh, uh, a journey of using Google Earth, hoping that I will find that needle in a haystack. Uh, which is that uh, uh, train station that I boarded that frightful night. Um, from being uh, sort of haphazardly using uh, Google Earth to using it uh, methodically, uh, after a five-year search in the latter parts, I ended up finding that little train station where I boarded that frightful night and eventually going back to India, um, all by myself because it was a sort of self-discovery journey and um, finding my family. So when you came to, first of all, write that story, Saru, and then to uh, agree the rights that somebody could make the film, did you ever have second thoughts um, in terms of what that would mean, not just for you, but for the the family around you, in terms of privacy? I did, but I think it was a a collective sort of, you know, writing the book. It wasn't just my decision. I, asked, I had to ask my parents as well because, like, like you said, you know, you're disclosing so much um, private information and you don't know how the world would think of you um, as well as sort of the people in our community. And so we thought, you know what, there's so much positivity to this story and let's do it because for the humanitarian, the, the Good Samaritan side. And so I think on that notion is why we were sort of driven to sort of write the book to help others out there that have been in a similar situation as myself. Because, I mean, I don't think I'm the only person out there that have been... I mean, there's stories out there that aren't apples and apples, but they're closely related. Mm. And, um, and I wanted to help other people out there. And by putting uh, my story out there, I hope it would educate and empower people to think that we're just not flesh and blood, but we're more than that. What sort of reactions have you had from people who are included in your in the in the book and uh, and in the film? Right. Um, yeah. That's that's always the tricky part about writing memoir. I always say the you know that it's the unfortunate fact that other people exist um, is <laughs> one of the challenges when you decide to to write a, your, your, about yourself. And um, you know, essentially, in the case of Wild, you know, I, I am using my life and my experiences by way of really seeking to tell a, a universal human story about loss and about um, resilience and journeys and all of those kinds of things. But inevitably, you know, when you write deeply about yourself, which I really always attempt to do, you know, uh, everyone has a mother and a father and, and, and you, you do inevitably have to include them in your story. And the questions that I always ask myself um, when I'm writing about other people who exist is, you know, am I invading their privacy um, and am I going to hurt their feelings? Um, and those things matter to me a lot. I feel anyone who's read my work knows that I am extremely honest um, about myself. I'm extremely transparent. I, I write things about myself that most people um, would never say or want out there in the world. Um, but when it comes to other people, I tend to be, you know, a lot more careful. My uh, siblings were incredibly supportive of the book, which I always feel so grateful for. Um, my mom is dead. So she, you know, in so many ways that was really liberating. I could just write what I could write everything about her. And, and you know, those of you who read the book know I write 
beautiful, thing, beautiful things about my mom. I mean, I had a great mom. I didn't have a great father. He's not dead. I don't have a relationship with him. Um, but I told the truth about who he was to me in as kind and gentle terms as possible. I didn't um, seek to hurt him by telling the truth, even though I think he's, you know, probably enraged by what I wrote. Um, but, you know, the thing is about, about that is the truth is an absolute defense. You know, I, I had to write about his violence and his abuse because that's my story and I have a right to it. Um, as far as the other people I met on the trail, I really had nothing but great experiences. Um, so many people, you know, people I didn't even include in the book, people I met along the way. Have, have, everyone's found me by now. And it's actually been a really rewarding and kind of sweet experience. And, you know, I changed the names of some of the people in the book. If I couldn't get in touch with them and say, do you want me to use your real name or a fake name? I just gave them a fake name. And one of the guys in the book, his name is Greg. He's also in the film. Um, his real name is Roger. And he has this whole industry now. He calls himself, I'm Greg and Wild, you know. And um, <laughs> he, he even has like a, this, a Christmas ornament that says like Greg and Wild. You know, he's like got a backpack on. But um, so it's, it's been an only a good experience. So I wonder, um, Mantosh in the book that you, um, the way that you describe him is quite, he's portrayed quite differently in the film, I felt. Is that something you feel is fair? He certainly was. And, um, and I think that's the poetic licence you sort of, uh, you know, sign, sign yourself over to. Um, I, I guess, I, thi I think when you see uh, myself and Mantosh uh, initially in the movie, um, it's like, you know, how do you take that? But it also has a really uh, a soft part, and I've got a soft spot for Mantosh, at the end of the movie, closer to the end of the movie, where I'm sort of, you know, putting a, a blanket over him. And, um, and it's not portrayed... I mean, Mantosh isn't really like that, but... And he's your, your brother. Right? He's, he, yeah. he's my uh, sort of yeah. our adoptive, you yeah. know, not biological, yeah. by blood. Um, but, you know, uh, he's gone through trials and tribulations and hardship himself. Um, and he's got a, a story in himself which is, you know, just as amazing and, um, and distorting as well uh, as myself. But um, I think, you know, we're really good, uh, Mantosh and I, at um, pushing that side uh, of our past aside, even though we're fully conscientious that it existed, but we push that aside because we feel that we're really lucky to be in Australia with amazing parents that have given us a second chance because life could have been really different if we stayed in India. Mm. I'm guessing he doesn't have a Christmas ornament with I'm Mantosh from, from uh, Lion. <laughs> not really. Not no. really, not really. <laughs> okay, so let's talk then about that process. So you've written the book and you've, kind of, you've got control over that, obviously working with editors and so on. But then when it came to um, the, the film side of things, how much control and how much involvement did you have? Um, not a real lot. We just sort of... Um, you know, I don't know anything about directing. I don't know anything about sort of, you know, grading um, in regards to, you know, the movie, um, the colour and so on. Um, so basically we ended up, my mother and I, my adoptive mother and I, got the, um, the script uh, from Luke Davies to have a read through it. And there was, uh, there was a few things we, we sort of, uh, you know, when we read we thought, no way, <laughs> you've got to take that out. <laughs> And so basically, we just what finessed it. Um, I'm not going to say, but anyway, <laughs> it's, it, we basically, my mother and I, put the crescendos and finessed it. And I don't think 
when it comes to a true live event, a scriptwriter really can't extrapolate out of the person the emotional side and write it down. You really had to go to the person that's embodying and exemplifying you. For me, it was Dev Patel, and for mum was Nicole Kidman, and and tell her face-to-face that this stage and phase, which you're going to sort of reenact, was like this in reality. And I know you've got a script there to portray it, but it's not as exactly, you know, it, you, just, you just can't read and reenact it. You've got to actually be with the real person and they will show you from being tactile to the voice to the facial expressions. I'm really glad that, you know, they sort of gave us the script um, to look through it and reading and, um, and yeah, it, you know, it sort of evidently showed that uh, from script to, to movie, it, it comes sort of um, pair and pair. Mm. And of course, the thing about your um, uh, your adoptive mum in on screen, Nicole Kidman, is that she has adopted two children. So your mum went along. Your adoptive mum went along and met her, didn't she? Yeah, she did. And that's the great thing about it. Not that I really understood back back then when all that was happening. You, you, you know, why does why does Nicole Kidman want to meet my mum and not me? <laughs> <laughs> oh. like, can I come, please? <laughs> It's like, jeez. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she's an A-grade actress, and I'm really glad that she did that because, you know, when you, when you see the scenes with Nicole Kidman, that's how it was in reality, like right down to the molecular level. So, Cheryl, I, I get the impression that you had a lot more involvement. Do you think that was partly because you were, um, you know, you were a writer by profession, that you were able to find your way right. in there? or? You know, I think it was a combination of things. I, I, uh, from the beginning, I knew that I wasn't going to just, you know, put this in anyone's hands. And I think that, that, that sometimes people have this idea that um, that writers are so, you know, gobsmacked by the the glitter the glitter of of movie stars that there's just like a great bird comes down and, and swoops your book up and away it goes and you know really like you said I mean we we get to decide who who makes the the movie of our books and that I took that decision very seriously even as, as excited as I was to hear Reese Witherspoon really wants to make a movie of this she wants to play you. Um, you know, once I got over that sort of like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. I had a very serious conversation with her um, during which she really had to essentially persuade me that she was the person to do this. Um, I wanted to hear from her what she saw in the book. What, what was this, you know, what story, why did it resonate with her? What was her vision um, for the film and for this character? Who is me? And so this, you know, the stakes are high always when your book's made into a movie, but especially when that that you know that book is a memoir. You know, from the very beginning, I trusted her because she was so like we just connected. So, and I always sort of, uh, in, you know, trust my intuition about people. She seemed like a, a really honest person, and she was. And she and she, you know, from there we proceeded, and a friendship began. And it was very collaborative. Every person she brought on to the project was somebody who, you know, became a friend of mine, who became somebody I felt very emotionally connected to. Nick Hornby, who adapted, you know, who wrote the screenplay, you know, sent me several drafts of the script and listened to me talk to him about it, and I gave him notes. And um, and then Jean-Marc Vallée, who directed the film. I mean, first of all, I'm getting ahead of myself. You know, we I was there. We shot the film in Oregon, where I live. 
I was on the set every day. I was welcome to the set. I was asked to be on the set. Um, and really weighed in on everything from what they were wearing to, to you know, what they were saying, um, to what it felt like, just everything like you described, you know, really saying to Reese, because so, so much of Wild is a kind of silent film, you know, it's Reese looking across this landscape, and obviously, you know, that stuff is in the book, like, what is she thinking when she's gazing upon that that view but i would be there with her talking to her about that too but then even jean-marc belay the director um which i think is just so brave and egoless of him he every cut of the film he would send me and then we would get on skype and talk for hours about it seven cuts of the film um that i saw before the final and each time jean-marc would listen to you know, my thoughts. And then I was with them on the whole journey of promoting the film. And it, we became like a, a, really a family. So it was, it was an, a, an extraordinary experience. I know that it's, my experience is not the norm. Um, oftentimes the writer is perceived as a threat to the filmmaking team because, you know, that was the other thing is I chose my battles. I wasn't a diva. I understood that, you know, the thing I made is sitting there on the table before us. It's a book and I'm a writer. And that's, if you want my story of Wild, you read the book. And the movie Wild, while I really love it, it's, it's not my creation. This is something that other artists interpreting the art I made and the That's life the I lived. same with me as well. Yeah. Because if, if, if I had to write the script a lion, well, I've written the book, but it would be totally different. Yeah. You know, I'd want it my way, which would have been really scary. Uh, because the movie is here, but if I directed it and so on and, and, and wrote it, it would be up here. It would be because there's things in there that are, are quite scary. But you've got to you've, you've got to make the movie to facilitate for the majority of the people mm. in the world, from from young to old, and so on. Yeah, and and things, I mean, things get left out. I mean, there are lots of things in the book that aren't in the film. And, you know, luckily there are very... I mean, a lot of times what we'll do is they'll add a lot of stuff to the film that's not in the book. That's, that's not so much the case. There are a couple examples of that in the movie. But for me, they didn't add stuff. They mostly omitted things. But, you know, omission can be, you know, a real deep altering of the truth. Um, the, the, my family in Wild is composed of me, my, uh, my brother, and my mom. And my family in, in life and in the book is, you know, I have a sister, I had a stepfather. Those, those people were just eliminated for the, for the purposes of the film. Mm. You got to be in it as well, didn't you? Yes. So I have a cameo in the film. Um, and my daughter, more importantly, my daughter Bobby uh, plays me. She plays the young me in the film. Um, when asked, she says, I'm my mother's memory. Um, because so when Reese is remembering her childhood you see um, her as a child. It's my daughter, Bobby, who's named after my mom, Bobby. Mm -hmm. Did Reese have any advice for you? She, she did. How many of you have seen the movie? Okay, at the very, you know, not at the very, very beginning, but close to the beginning, there's a um, the scene where, you know, Reese gets dropped off at this motel the night before I'm going to begin my hike, or she's going to begin her hike. We're getting our pronouns mixed up here. But um, uh, so I am the person who's driving the truck, who, like, I'm dropping myself off for the hike, or Reese off. And um, which is kind of, you know, cool. It, it seems like we really thought that out. It was just that it was the last day of shooting, and we realized I had yet to have my cameo. <laughs> and so my only job is to drive this truck, this old truck, like a block, stop, look at Reese and say, good luck. And I'm sitting in the truck, 
before we're going to begin shooting, and I suddenly get absolutely terrified. And because I realize, how do you say good luck? <laughs> there are so to many. To yourself. There are so many ways to say good luck. This is why I'll never be an actor. Because, I, you know, you could be like, well, good luck. You, I mean, there are all these ways. And so I, I start to panic. My heart is racing. I don't know how to say good luck. I know I'm like, what do I say? How do I, you know? And so I look at Reese and all through the shoot, every, everyone who had, you know, all the other actors who had been with her were like, she's so amazing. She doesn't act like a movie star. She's a real person. She was so supportive. And I think who better to support me in my moment of performance anxiety and terror and I say Reese you know I'm really scared and I don't know how to say good luck and you know what what advice do you what do I do what advice do you have for me and she looks at me and she says just don't f it up (laughs) (laughs) which you know I give advice like I have an advice podcast I have a book tiny beautiful things that is advice and I realize like that is basically my advice for pretty much everything (laughs) okay just don't f it up (laughs) Do you have a cameo in the film? Well, you know what? Um, I asked uh, Garth Davis, um, can I have a cameo in So, so he's like, the director, whatever. isn't he? He's, he's the director. Mm. And I said, look, it can be as simple as uh, sitting in the corner with a, a latte and a biscotti on the side. And um, You wouldn't even have to say good luck. I, I wouldn't have to say anything. <laughs> it's just I do, you know, just have a swig and, and, a, and, a, and a crunch. But then when I saw the movie for the first time, um, I wasn't expecting that... I'd have a massive cameo at the end. Yeah. And that was a surprise. And, and I'm thinking, oh, I wish, wish I could be in there some, doing something, whatever, I don't mind. And then I've got this massive cameo yeah. at the end with, you know, uh, the 60 Minutes documentary uh, to show people that this is just not a fictional movie. It's actual factual right at the end. Uh, so that so was, I was decided like, where, I mean, you didn't know that I, that was going to happen. I had no at the idea. Yeah. No, and like, that was a, like a, you know, a Christmas present for me. It's like, there you go. It's like, yeah. I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hmm. So do you get, do you get residuals from, for being in the movie? As, I mean, even though it's an excerpt of a documentary, are you not, are you considered an actor in the film? Um, I don't know. <laughs> well, I, don't, I was just. No, little did I know. Every, I get a check every six months for having said good luck. Oh, great. <laughs> wow. just, just, just so you know, you get paid, you know, and they have to pay you if you say words in a film. And every six months I get residuals. It's yeah. usually like $62 or something, but hey, it adds up. It does at the end, doesn't it? <laughs> so good luck. It? Um, <laughs> no, it wasn't, it wasn't sort of like that with me. I was just uh, grateful and humble and touched that, you know, I was, I was in there because uh, it really showed people um, that thought... Uh, this is this movie, this story can't be true. It in fact is, and you know I, I, I like to say that I'm a huma- humanitarian, and um, you know I, I really want to help people that are, are being in a similar situation as myself to others that see the film and evokes an a- different attributes to them. But yeah, absolutely grateful that I was at the end, and so was my mum. Both your mums. Both my mums in there, and what a pivotal sort of. Uh, moment of time too uh, for both, you know, having a mother that's given me birth to a mother that's given me a second chance at life. So, Cheryl, in your book, I mean, there's, there's so much of you in there. There's emotion, there's a lot of, um, you know, your thoughts and so on. And obviously on the page, that internal monologue, whether it's in fiction or non-fiction, is, is there. But then how well do you think that that transferred onto the screen? Because Reese had to put so much of that you know, not into words, but into her facial expressions, didn't she? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely the challenge, I think, of cinema, and especially of film adaptation of 
literary works because you know literature is the art of interiority you know this is this is the only way that we can actually really enter into the mind of another human um whether that human be fictional or or not um you know those words on the page are a portal into our deepest most intimate thoughts we can be more intimately inside of a, a character's head than we can with the person sitting across the table from us, right? And so, you know, that is always the challenge of a movie, and especially that's amplified by a film where, you know, usually the, the trick is take take the interior monologue and put it into dialogue, right, um, when you make a movie. Um, that's hard to do when you're alone, a character alone walking through the wilderness. And so, you know, they do different things. They, they had voiceover. They had, um, you know, really a reliance on Reese um, and her acting chops, uh, that sense of atmosphere and vibe and facial expression um, that, that they tried to use to give the feel of what she might be thinking or feeling. But, you know, there again, I think that, like, they, they did that beautifully. And also, you know, the deeper view of what was going on for me is in the book. So perhaps because of that, I mean, Wild kind of breaks quite a few conventions of cinema, doesn't it? Do you think that yeah. fed into that, you know, that, that, that sort of originality that it was fated for? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's Jean-Marc Vallée, too. That's, as a director, his, his creative mark um, is everywhere on this film where he was, you know, trying to, to use a number of things, whether it be music, um, the ways that those, the, the, the sort of whispered voiceover you hear at times. He even brought in some supernatural um, qualities. There's uh, there's a scene in the book that I see a fox and I have this mm. experience with the fox. He turns it into, you know, a fox that's really kind of more like a ghost, the ghost of her mother. Um, you know, and, and he uses that in ways that I didn't in the book. So let's talk a little bit about memory then. So let's begin with you. Um, I mean, when obviously you were very young when a lot of the the um, as you'd say trials and tribulations happened to you so you've got that in your memory from a long time ago you write it down and then you see it on the screen I wonder if it's slightly similar to you know when we're when we're children and we kind of half remember things but people have told us something's happened so many times so that it becomes a sort of internalized memory when you look up on the screen there is there a a contradiction there for you between what really happened and now when you see it on the screen sort of yeah, look, um, there was slightly, but I think when you've got a director and a scriptwriter, they sort of want to put their own sort of twist into it. It is sort of the same, but it's just you know, slightly augmented because there would be no purpose of reenacting the same story you know, that I've written. It's just like, well, what's the point of a scriptwriter when the movie is to the book? But I would say it's 80% you know, true to the, to the story, the real-life mm. event. Which is great, and I think there's so much raw data. There's uh, that I don't I don't know why would people sort of uh, deviate. Um, but in your mind, it. does it ever get muddled? No, not really. No, no. it's like it, you know, it's 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 a reenactment that sort of was the same, it, very close. But I don't I don't get muddled. I know exactly where they're going, mm. and you know, a lot of people would you'd see it on my sort of Facebook page, the official, that how come the movie is so different to the book, well, you'd, you'd, I'd get all those sort of people messaging, but it isn't. I don't get really any of that. It's very true to, to in the book, and when I see it to answer your question, it's like, it's a little bit different, but, you know, it's very true to what happened in reality. What about you, Cheryl? I guess you were so much o- older. 
when you when you when oh, the you experience mean in terms of memory yeah. yeah no i mean i think the whole question of memory is fascinating because even though i i mean i i, I did you know there are parts of my childhood obviously that i've written about in wild so there are things i'm telling you that i remembered when i was 5 or 6 um, but also you know i wrote the book years after i took the hike and one question i get a lot is like well how do you remember so vividly everything you know that happened and you know th- there are two answers to that one is that i did keep a journal and so i was you know, I had my PCT journal. I didn't keep a journal because I thought I'd write a book about it someday. It's just all through my 20s and 30s, I wrote in my journal. And so I could go, okay, this was what I was doing and thinking on this day. Um, This is the day I met so-and-so. And, And, you know, I also, like I said, I reached out to people I met on the trail to, um, when I was writing the book, to see, like, well, what do you remember from our meeting? Um, I couldn't find everyone, but those I did find, the thing that I was absolutely struck by the most is, you know, memory is always being criticized. Like, oh, you know, you, you, nobody can really remember anything. And actually what I found is the opposite. That so much more often than not, the person I would reach out to would, would remember, you know, not only what I did, but even down to like really specific details, like what we ate, uh, what, what we, you know, what was the nature of our conversation? Um, what was the joke we had with each other? And, you know, I think part of that is like the hike was such an amplified experience that I remembered it so vividly. But also, you know, the, the thing about writing memoir is you are immersing yourself, in, you know, in your life in a way that we don't in ordinary life. And the, the thing I liken it to is if you have a friend from, you know, 30 years ago, you went to school with somebody and you run into them and your first sense is like you don't remember all the stuff you did back in the day but then you get to talking and by the end, by the end of the evening you've said like 30 times oh my gosh now i remember oh yes you're right about it. and you know what it is it's a, your your brain is simply being prompted to recall what is actually there, that, you, that you're accessing what you thought was forgotten. And writing deeply about your life absolutely does that. So, you know, a lot of you, when I teach memoir, I'm always like, you remember more than you think you do. Um, you're just not working that muscle. And when you're writing, you do. Did you that's, find that as that's, well? That's exactly right. Like, you kept a, you know, a, a journal of everything. But for me, my story, it's a psychological scarring. And I kept everything that had happened to me from, you know, every single phase and stage from being um, living in my hometown with my, my family to everything that had happened because I felt when I came to Australia that if I'd lost all that memory of my past that I would never find my identity. And so I treasured it in a box, locked it and put it in the side and went on, soldiered on with, uh, with my life in, in Australia, hoping that one day that... I'd able to get that key again and open it up. So when writing the story, I was, you know, asked, uh, would you like to write a memoir, your, your odyssey of your life? And, and, you know, I didn't get any help in how I should, but I just went in and sort of, OK, well, I'm just going to tell it in a chronological order. So my mum bought a, a ticket uh, for me to fly to Thailand, you know, to get away from everywhere and, and start. And I really had to sit back and relax and sometimes just lie on my bed and think about that certain phase of stage that you want to write about in chronological order but and go into depth and all of a sudden these, these doors start to open. You know, they've got cobwebs, they've never been open for ages. And as you sort of get immerse yourself a lot further into that specific phase, a, a heap of doors start sort of opening up and you start ending up writing from 
you think just a small bit to ending up, you know, pages and pages, uh, which is all good stuff anyway, you know, to be put into a book. But um, I, I certainly had the same experience yeah. um, slightly with yourself, um, di- digging yourself deep into the past um, because, you know, I had such a fragmented memory of, you know, the stage and phases and events that had happened. But once you start really getting in, you start defragmenting and populating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually the way the brain works. Mm. You know, brain scientists will back us up on this yeah, People would say, how, how can you remember so far? Yeah. But if you really exercise that muscle, yeah. you know, for me, um, I don't really tell this to a lot of people, but, you know, it helped. And that was listening to sort of music, sort of, you know, uh, just like Enigma and stuff like that. It really helped myself sort of getting down right in depth of um, something that I really wanted to talk about. Because with so much sort of distortion going around, I needed a little bit of help. And my mum's a massive follower of Enigma and so on, that kind of uh, snake music, I guess. And so it helped me. And, you know, that's why, I mean, the book is the thickness it is uh, to facilitate for the majority of the people in the board in the world, but it could have been, I think, three times thicker. <laughs> but there were some depths that presumably you didn't really want to go back into. Did you have to make yourself do that? I was happy to tell and put everything out there. Mm. You know, it's like, just, just tell it how it was. Mm. Why well, I need to sort of deviate and go in a different direction? And it's like people want to hear, are interested in raw data. And the more, the merrier. So you teach memoir. If anybody in the audience is, is thinking about writing a memoir, perhaps in that process, do you have any tips for how to access those memories? Right, yeah, I, I teach on occasion. I, I mean, that's such a big question because obviously this is like a, year, you know, a years-long apprenticeship mm. that can, you know, there's so much to say about mm. how to write and how to write a memoir. But, you know, in terms of just that specific question about how to access is to begin. You know, what you just heard the two of us say is, um, you know, you, you, most of us in our regular lives are not, you know, standing in the doorway trying to peer into um, those cobwebs and brush them aside and see what's behind them. But, the, but writing is doing exactly that, and especially writing memoir. And so, you know, just trust the process. Write what you remember. One of my one of the best writing prompts I give people, which sounds kind of nuts, but it always ends up being incredibly useful. Is, um, I say, um, write about what you don't remember. So people begin from that place of what they don't remember. And, and obviously the story of what you don't remember um, becomes all the stuff you know. And you really do just have to begin and it will lead you to places that you, that you can't really quite reach in, in your, you know, without having first begun. And you also have to think about you know, who's going to play the part of you when it gets made into a movie. So have that <laughs> going on in your head. That, that, that is so right. You, know, you have to put pen on paper. It's like no one can sort of help you do that. You have to do it yourself. You have to be proactive about it. And you know, like a car salesman, if, uh, if you haven't got any cars, then you've got nothing to sell or put out there. No matter what it, no, what way it is, like you could be talking about this, then that, and just, and then go, oh, okay, well, I was talking about that, but I can sort of expand further afield on it. And, you know, you've got to take that first step. And that first step is putting that pen on paper and start writing. Oh, typing. Sorry, we're going back now. We've got computers <laughs> and stuff like that. We can type. So I think that's what I tell, you know, when I go to universities, you know, how do you start writing a book? It's like, well, in anything, really. You've got to take that first step to put pen on paper. Mm. So we've talked about the process of the writing. We've talked about being on set or not being on set. We've talked about the film being made and you've seen the memories. After parties, Hollywood, 
Oscar nominations. How was all that side of things? I, well, uh, ladies first. Oh, okay, I'll be a gentleman. Um, Didn't realise what I was getting into. And and as much as was like, you know, it's been an extreme colourful journey, um, going to sort of LA and doing panel sessions for the Golden Globes, the Oscars and BAFTAs and so on, was, was an amazing experience. You know, I can't say that I've got a lot of friends that's, that's had a, uh, a book written about themselves, then a movie, and then um, it's been nominated in all these sort of fields. I thought, you know, let's grab the bull by the horn and do as much as you can in order to promote. And it was exciting times. It was hard work, I've got to say that. A lot of talking, a lot of photos... I think I've got glaucoma or something. Um, no, I'm joking, I don't. <laughs> but, you know, it was well worth it. And I have to say, I really enjoyed it, uh, meeting all sorts of actors and actresses. But it was like, you know, getting up early in the morning, flying here and there to, you know, making sure that you try and... Because I didn't really know the sort of terminologies to use. I was, you know, I was looking through um, Google um, to find all these sort of words to use so I can sort of be quite eloquently sort of spoken and, um, and, and I started, you know, started writing all these different words that are mean, meaningful in regards to the questions that I might be asked, you know, sort of pre-thinking and started to populate all these sort of words and then I was like, yeah. And, you know, Dev Patel helped and said, sorry, you need to say this here. And I'm like, oh, sorry. Um, I'm a little bit of a ha- having a chat. But, you know, it was, uh, it was good fun and I would do it again. It was a blast. It's exactly everything that Sir just said. I, I felt like I got to have this really unexpected visit into a foreign land called Hollywood. And I greeted it with joy. And we would be on the red carpet and always laughing because I just couldn't believe, like, there's just the clamor of, like, them calling your name and shooting all these these flashes and photos. And, you know, I'd be standing there next to Reese and, and Laura Dern and um, just, it was fun. It was, it was scary. When you got those photos, it was scary for me. I was like hesitant um, when you got, you know, um, yeah, you know all those I, photo shoots. I was like, whoa, because there were so many people yeah, it'd be taking just photos, wall. but then like a, you got used to it. A wall, a bank of, of, of photos. Yeah. And then, as you said, just getting to meet so many people and, um, and the experience too of them being a fan of you. You know, like you'd be like, oh, I'm such a fan. And they'd be like, no, I'm the fan, you know. And <laughs> this access to a world that, like I said, I got to, I got to visit this, this foreign land called Hollywood. And, and it was a blast. It was fun. And, you know, just all these little things, you know, you'd get to your hotel room and they'd make a chocolate tower, like, that is like a hiking boot. Or, you know, like they'd always like do some special thing. <laughs> like, what they make for you, a lion? Did you get any chocolate lions? <laughs> I, got a, I, got a, I got a California burger. <laughs> That was nice. <laughs> they would always make like chocolate things that were something from my book for me in my, and to be waiting for me in the hotel room. Maybe oh, it's because I got to say good luck. They, they, yeah. So. <laughs> that was very nice. That was very nice. <laughs> okay, so who's got questions? Either you can tell us your real name or you can tell us who you would like to play the real you in the movie of your life. Be brave. Uh, my question is for Saru. In your book, um, you talk about... Uh, your mom helping you to, you know, draw out the location of your house and things like that. But when you went there, you didn't know English, or very little English, mm. what you were trained. So how long did it take for you to, to get to communicate with your mom, with Mrs. Brearley, to be able to put that down into thought, put that down? How, how long? My adoptive mother. To talk to your mom, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I didn't know the language, like you said, and, and I learned slowly. But because I had such uh, vivid images of my past, 
I could tell a story, but I had to wait to learn the English language before I could tell that story. And, you know, that, that was fascinating because uh, um, my mother used to be my, like, sort of, my adoptive mother, um, a psychologist, psychiatrist. And she's got two books of everything that I used to talk about. And she asked me all these questions from, you know, where did you live to how did you sort of live in, in your village um, to writing the map of my village. And I'm really glad that she did that, you know, because um, there was a couple of things that I sort of had forgotten, um, especially the name of my father. I didn't realise that I actually, she actually extracted and wrote it down in the book, the name of my father. So I think it was only time, you know, before I learnt the English language to really, to tell my mum that this is how this situation it was. It was gradually, but surely I got there. And uh, hence why she's got these two books. And that was a really good thing for her to do on rainy days. Um, but one of the things that I just want to say is uh, she, the last session that I had with her, she said, you know what, Saru, I would really like to meet your biological mother because I can show her what an amazing man that you have grown up to be. And at the... <laughs> Thank you. Um, and at the end of the movie, when you were talking about you saw uh, the scene uh, with my biological mother and my adoptive mother, it came up in reality, case to the point. You know, when she had that session with me of wanting to meet my biological mother, it happened. And you guys saw it when you saw Lion right at the end. It's, uh, it's a, it, I cherish that moment. Yeah, I bet you do. I bet you do. There was another question just here. Yeah. Um, my question is for Saru. In the film, there's a young woman you have a relationship with who's quite supportive of you and you leave her to go on your journey. Was she there when you got back? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? When I did the tour uh, of promoting in, in, in America of uh, the film line with Dev Patel and Nicole Kidman, that was the most asked question. <laughs> was she there waiting for you? And my answer to that was like, you know, I didn't know what to say, but Lucy is a compression of a couple of girlfriends. Um, so, you know, that's the way, like, um, Lisa, Una, Yvonne... Um, <laughs> Kate and Yvonne there you go, Lucy Lucy. Yeah. so yeah that's the way that they had to sort of you know project that bit my name's Rebecca and I just wanted to say you guys are absolutely amazing and it's been so special to see you today I have a few friends who have said if we can be in your culture we'll, be, we'll all be members and join your group and I've listened to your podcast and it's just so impressive thank you I just I wanted to ask you about your process of writing your books because there's a lot of comparisons that I feel like I've had in my lives with both of yours and it's been so inspiring to read about your stories and understand more about you and I just wanted to know how much of that was part of your therapy of dealing with what you had to deal with you know it's interesting because I, I have been a writer a serious writer you know since I was like 19 um, as a kid, you know, I recognized that writing was my calling and it's everything I've always, you know, wanted to do and, and have done, you know, as in my adult life. And for a long time, I would say until I was about in my mid thirties, maybe until my first book torch was published, I, I was very, when I would get that kind of question, I was always pushing it away. I, you know, I do not write for catharsis. I write because I'm an artist and this is a professional endeavor. And, and I think that I, I had to do that in order to kind of establish my seriousness, especially as a woman writer, especially as a woman writer who writes about emotional things. There's a kind of um, way that we, we make women small by being like, oh, it's just your little diary, you know. And, and, um, but the fact of the matter is now that I am more 
confident, I guess, and, and, um, you know, being honest about like that whole thing is, is that writing is, is all of those things to me. It is absolutely, um, a very rigorous artistic endeavor. Um, and is my professional work. It's also probably the most cathartic thing I've ever done in my life because writing requires you to step into the doorway and walk through all of the cobwebs and see, shine a light on every dark corner, remember everything, reckon with everything, and, and, and bring everything into the light in a way that it demands that you make some meaning of it and make some sense of it. And um, that is healing. It's very powerful. And I see it over and over again when I help other people in their, with their writing as a teacher that often writing brings us places that we wouldn't ordinarily go. And that is, is almost, you know, it's always a truth-telling mission. And it's powerful. And it's, so it's, it's powerfully healing and cathartic. I've never, I've never written a book before, but um, I did start by text messages, invoices. Uh, probably, probably, I'm not to the sort of standard that you are, but, um, but I just thought, you know, I'd give it a go. And, you know, it's amazing when you give something a go that you've never sort of, um, you know, been in, in or involved, uh, that, you know, things can come out amazingly. And uh, it so happens that um, talking, of course, is totally different to writing. And uh, you can't just get a, a little radio or, you know, a dictator, whatever they call it, and just talk about it and hope that when you sort of download it onto a laptop, it's going to just write what you just wrote. It, it's, it's totally different. But I think I just, for me, I didn't really think about much. I just had to put all this information that was in my memory onto, onto my laptop and just type it out and just, just go for it. But yeah, I've certainly, you know, learnt sort of little tricks and so on. And, um, you know, what people, you've got to write down what people want to know and what people don't really want to know. Um, like, you know, I had a cheesecake. It's, it's like, uh, it's not going to really work through. But, but you know, it's, uh, it was an interesting process. And, of course, I had a ghostwriter with me. And then we sort of finessed it at the end because more data required and so on. And the American sort of publisher wanted a little bit more information as opposed to the Australian publisher. And, you know, it was a new sort of journey that I've never been on. But, mm. you know, I can certainly sort of write another book and, you know, with, depending on what kind of genre I wanted to. But I think, you know, sci-fi would have to be the hardest. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wow. leave that one for another day. Okay, <laughs> other questions? Question at the back there, yeah. Uh, Sheru and Sarod, so great to meet you both in the flesh today. Thank the you. movies have been so inspiring. I wanted to ask you, after all the pain and the loss that you've been through and where you are today, do you believe that whatever happens, happens for the best? And have your experiences made you more deeply spiritual? I think I was a destiny's child when I was in, in uh, Calcutta, going from the orphanage to Australia. And I created the trajectory of my life because, you know, I, I had the opportunity to. But I had, re you know, really good family, um, as my adoptive families, that had sort of fortified things into me and making, you know, strong pillars of who I am from what I was. So it certainly has sort of strengthened, you know, created a massive brace in understanding family values and to sort of being spiritual because my mum was extremely spiritual. And, you know, she had this massive love for India, uh, the spirituality, the people, the food, and my heritage is uh, in India. And so what's happened in the past, I think, you know, uh, and what's happening to me now, I, I guess it's just meant to be, you know, um, life has been drawn out already because... <coughs> You know, sometimes catching the wrong train might take you to the right station. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that our hardships always, if, if we, you know, they almost always lead us to a deeper understanding of who we are and who, and, and a deeper compassion for others as well on their in their struggles and journeys. So I think without question, I don't know, I would say that like, well, what happens happens. But I mean, I think most of us want to believe that we have more control over what happens, right? Um, but I think that's that in itself, like acknowledging that we don't, understanding um, that we all suffer sometimes. We all have mis misfortune. Um, it might look differently, but it doesn't feel differently. And, um, you know, really there are, our answer to that, you know, what do we do with, with our losses? How do we bear what we feel we cannot bear? You know, ends up being, you know, a, a, I, I think a sort of spiritual evolution if we do it right, if we do it well. And so there's no question. I mean, when I think about just, for example, the in my own little life, you know, uh, the, the death of my mother. In one way, I mean, obviously, I would ra have it be otherwise. Um, on the other hand, you know, I have really turned that curse into a blessing that I really, you know, carry, you know, so much that I have brought into the world is born of, you know, if, if I brought any beauty into the world via writing about my grief, it was born of something that was ugly. And, you know, to, to acknowledge that is, um, is a complicated but powerful thing. Do you have an on-screen name? Are you going to be brave? I'm Nigel, but I, Dave Patel, actually. I wouldn't mind Dave. Okay, fine. We'll take that. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I thought I was going to be portrayed as um, Wesley Snipes. <laughs> Maybe next time. In, in, the next, <laughs> in, in, li in Lion 2. Yeah. But a question for you, Saru, about your birth mother in the film. I assume she's seen the film and those in her village. Yes. They have. How have they been affected by it? I mean, affected in a positive, negative way. Sort of Hollywood coming to what we think is a small, really poor village. In, is it Bihar? One of the very poor parts of India. Just, can you share something about that side? Oh, my biological family has seen it, uh, seen the movie. But I, I don't think, you know, the whole of my town has. But I think from, you know, myself and my adoptive parents to my biological as well, we don't really like to sort of put our flags high. And, you know, just being sort of grateful and having all these sort of opportunities, uh, it's been great. But it was extremely, you know, emotional for my mum, but, um, biological mum, when she first saw it. She was, I was sitting right next to her. And she was just in tears right through from start to finish. And because, you know what, one time she was standing and she had a little, um, you know, her son and daughter running around her, and then all of a sudden um, her little boy just vanished like a ghost, never to be seen again. And 25 years, he came back, materialised on a Sunday afternoon, standing in front of her, and, you know, she was, she was in a mental sort of a turmoil where the protons and neutrons and electrons are just going everywhere um, and didn't know what to think. But I, I think in regards to, well, going back to your question, I think she, the people in our village is aware but she walks freely without being disturbed. I'm Neeraj. A question is for you, Saru. Oh, give Cheryl one. <laughs> <laughs> Directors uh, have freedom to dramatize. And that is justified because of the, the movie has to be sold. Uh, the question is, the scenes in Calcutta before you were adopted, were they stories of a number of children or like completely different stories which were compressed together for dramatization purposes? 
or did it all actually happen the way you have portrayed it? Um, going, yeah, sure. When I came to Calcutta, we're just going to sort of fast forward a bit. I ended up going to a metro train, uh, metro police station, and then I went to a youth juvenile prison, which you're sort of amongst so many different people, like juvenile delinquents that have done all sorts of things from from robbery to murder and so on. You know, let the imagination go wild. So scary as well. And so I think that sort of uh, scene was uh, sort of put there, even. For, for people to sort of let their mind think, you know, the possibilities of what could have happened to Saru if he stayed. And these are the you know, avenues that, you know, he could have ended up sort of, you know, doing this or that. It wasn't a very nice place. If there was a place called Hell, that was it. It was such, you know, the scariest place entering the gates. Yeah, I can't even explain it. But, you know, it was very extremely close to reality. And I think that's why that sort of scene was there to make guys and people just you know see the possibilities out there that could have happened and you know we could and they could have sort of traced okay this this thing happened to this boy um that happened to that girl and so on but you know you didn't want to go too in depth and i don't think you need to do no. you it's just that it was just it was just menace. put there for for yeah. you to think about and then on you go on my journey to um Siraj sued and then being adopted to australia We've got time for one final question just here hi sir i'm ricky in the grand scheme of things What's the jalebi effect? All right, I know as a little boy, <laughs> you were fond of eating the sweet jalebi. Well, it, it was That's, because... I have a couple more. That's the first one. No, 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 oh. only one question, one question, one question. Okay. Please. Well, um, jalebi was a, a delicacy for us from the slums. You know, we sort of lived on half-eaten food and... Uh, things that have been sort of, um, you know, thrown onto the ground. Um, we went through adversity, destitute and deprivation. And to see jellybees being cooked, it was just like a wish, a w- a wish you know, like caviar. It's like I, I've, I haven't really tasted caviar because that's a massive delicacy in the Western world. But that was the same for me in India, you know, as a child growing up, is that I wish I got a, a little taste of it. Um, and, you know, now you just put that in my head. I'm just like, oh, jeez. <laughs> we'll have to find you one later. Goodness me, what a wonderful hour. Thank you to Saru and Cheryl. Thank you. Thanks, guys.